Hi everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. In this episode, we'll talk to a former colleague of mine and career Army Special Forces medic, Monty Leha. Way back in 1991, Monty enlisted thinking he would be a short-timer, then get out and work in healthcare or EMS. After falling in love with the job, he continued on to complete a 24-year career. We talked about some of the changes in military medicine and military leadership from the beginning of the war in Afghanistan until around 2015. Then, how becoming an ROTC instructor allowed Monty to reach a new generation of Army leaders. And finally, how to balance experience with new skills to pivot careers in your 40s while doing several things at once. A few weeks back, Monty and I had the chance to sit down together near his office in Tucson, Arizona. The bureaucracy of working in the public sector was challenging, so I went into the dean at that time and I said, I can solve your problem tomorrow. And she said, Monty, sit down. That's not how we do it here. Yeah. You know, there's a process. Thanks for listening. Okay, great. I'm here in Tucson, Arizona. I'm sitting down with Monty Leha. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, so you came in the Army a bit earlier than the guests that we've had on so far. So yeah. you're kind of an old timer. You came in what, like the early 90s? Yes, I came in 91, yeah. right after Desert Storm. Okay. To be honest, I was getting in a lot of trouble, you know. So I <laughs> was like, what was I? I was 20, 19, 20, you know, and I was out partying and just having the old, good old time. Yeah. And I worked at a prison and I was like, man, I'm going to end up like these guys in here if I keep doing what I'm doing. Really? Yeah, getting in trouble. And I lived out in the rural area. Yeah, where are you from? Yeah, uh, I'm from Glendale, Arizona. Oh, yeah. But at the time, Glendale, Arizona was very rural. It's city now, but it was very rural. Okay. So I lived on the rural part. You just We go out to the desert, you know, go drinking, go fighting, do all that stupid stuff. <laughs> what, were you do what, what job did you have at a prison? Were you a guard or something Yeah, I was else? a guard at a medium facility in the maximum security building. Yeah. Because I was pretty big then. I mean, okay. I was, I, I just got done playing some college football. I, I played college football yeah. at Scottsdale Community. Okay. So I was pretty big. So I got put in the maximum security block because, okay. you know, I could throw some people around. Yeah. And then I saw all these, all these prisoners. I'm like, I'm going to end up like these guys if I don't make a change. So the war happened and I thought, man, maybe I should just join the military. Yeah. Maybe I should do that. And then started figuring out what I wanted to do and decided I wanted to be a Green Beret. Okay. So I was totally in Green Beret, but they're like, hey, your GT score is not high enough. So your like standardized test score. Right. Yeah. yeah. My standardized test score, I was a 104. And at that time, you needed a 110 yeah. to get into uh, special forces. Yeah. So I, I was like, well, you know, I'll just join and I'll just take the test later and I'll just get ready for it. I'm going to do this. I got to leave anyways. Okay. So then I joined the Army, and then it took me almost a year or two of studying for that test. And I came back, and I got like a 120-something, almost a 130, I believe, on the GT score. Yeah. So I was good to go, go to selection. And then my first round of selection, I got injured. Okay. And then I went to the 82nd, and then I went right back to SFAS, and then started my SF career from there. Okay. Did you come in as like a SF baby? No, no, I was a 91 Bravo. So I came in as a medic. Oh, okay. Uh, so my whole goal was to be an 18 Delta. Really? When an I joined the Army, when yeah. I signed up for the Army, my goal was to be an 18 Delta. 
Yeah. That's what I wanted to be. Okay. I thought I should be that because I was never going to stay in the military. I was only going to do that short stint, come back, join the fire department, yeah. be a paramedic. That was the plan. And how long did you end up staying in? 24 years. <laughs> okay. 24 years. Great. So kind of give me a, what happened to the military after 9-11? Because you were in for at least a decade beforehand. Yeah. And then, you know, a decade and a half afterwards. Yeah. What did it look like before and after? Oh, wow. Okay. So before you were always just training and practicing to go to war. So it was always war games. It was never yeah. the real thing. Was uh, it like polishing boots and pressing uniforms and looking nice too? And it, there was a piece of that and on the conventional side, a big piece of that, shining boots. But then as soon as I went to group, that totally changed. There was no more shining boots. There was no more ironing uniform because you were every day you were working, you were out doing training. Yeah. There was just not a lot of time to shine boots and no reason to shine boots because you tore them up anyways. So we were always preparing for battle on the conventional side, but it wasn't real until 9-11. And then we launched out that next February. So 9-11 happened and then we, yeah. were, we were in Afghanistan. What group were you in then? Third group. Oh, okay. So we went out in February. So, so like third February group, 02 in O2. Afghanistan. Yes, February 02 in o Afghanistan. Yeah, what was With, that like? Okay, that was the Wild West, mm. I would say. We got there on the ground, linked up with our partner force or your... Um, indigenous. Time, indigenous force, that's what yeah, I'm yeah. looking for. So we linked yeah. up with our indigenous force. Which we went, is the core special forces mission. Right, right. That's so we, why we're here. Yes. Yeah. So we linked yeah. up with this indigenous force, started doing this training plan, getting them ready to, to go to battle in the middle of Sarobi. That's what it was called at Sarobi at the time. Okay. So we had like 25 to 50 indigenous forces, 12 guys on the ODA, mm. right? In the middle of nowhere, pretty much making up our own rules, like just very limited command oversight yeah. whatsoever because so you think that leadership was distributed down to the lower level and that was a strategy and you just had to figure out your region yes we totally had to do every we had to do the indigenous the politics yeah. meeting with the, you know the chiefs you know making them feel comfortable with us being here why we were there who we were chasing and it was totally on ourselves to do everything we had no support except for the occasional air helo coming in once a week maybe with some supplies. Other than that, we're just totally on our own. Yeah, so this is probably why you decided to be an SF medic. You're out. That was it, You're yes. out in the middle of nowhere. Yep. And it's just up to you. Yep, so I built my clinic up, guys would get injured. You know, I was treating serious injuries yeah. by myself. Yeah. or with team members that were cross-trained. Did you have another, were you two medic team or one? We were one medic team for a long time, then we got attached a medic to us, an older SF guy. Okay. Um, not the fittest at the time. Okay. <laughs> but knowledgeable in like medicine. So I was very, you know, at that time, medics were pretty good at trauma. And I knew some good medicine from being uh, a 91 Bravo or a combat medic. I knew I had some good- Yeah, an army medic. Med yeah, yeah, I had some good medical skills. 
But Mike, he knew all the old school medicine. So like people come in these weird diseases yeah. and I'm like, I don't know what this is, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I know, come over here. So he was good in that way. Yeah. But this is was the difference of, he was an old school SF medic to where, you know, he didn't really do patrolling. He just did like med caps. And yeah. Other things, so he knew a lot of medicine, but he wasn't really a patrol guy or an aggressive guy. Like he, you know, you got him on the trucks. He's like a clinician. He was totally a clinician and not okay. a, a tactical type of medic, I guess okay. you say. Uh, but he was very knowledgeable. So yeah, so we ended up getting him at yeah. some point, but originally it was just me for a long, for, for a while. So that's one of the big differences between special operations medics and line medics, right? is that clinical training, clinical experience, because a lot of times you're out there in the middle of nowhere and it's just you. Right. right. And uh, conventional side medics, they have support by their doctors. Yeah. Right, they, they don't go yeah. very far without their PAs and their doctors. They kind of always have that support. Yeah. The, where we were, totally no support. So I'll give you a good story. Yeah. Good okay. example, all right. So, can't remember his name. I think I'm going to say Sean. I, yeah, it was Sean. So he went on this deployment, you know, with the Cat One. Is it with the teeth, right? Is oh, or Cat Four? When your when your medical profile says limited deployment, right? Because you haven't done. He your had a de dental issue. Because he had a dental issue. Yeah. Okay. But that went all out the door when 9/11 happened. All that went out the door. Like, oh, of course. Everybody's deployable now. Didn't matter before. You weren't deployable because of your teeth before. So you got to do some dentistry. So we got to do some dentistry, right? So it's like uh, two weeks into this tooth pain, and I'm like, you know, they're not coming to get him. Yeah. So I was like, hey, the only thing I know to do for your tooth is pull it out. <laughs> That's the only skill I have is to pull this tooth out. Yeah. And he's like, well, oh, maybe I can wait. I was like, sure, when you tell me when you're ready. And then one night he comes in, he's like, pull it. He's like, I have to get this pulled out. Like, okay. So. So that was an event of itself. So I got all my carpet jets out, you know, to yeah. numb his mouth. So, I mean, he was numb. There's yeah. no way he's going to fill this. <laughs> so I go in to pull it out, and it's a molar. Yeah. I knew how to pull a tooth out because I pulled it out before in, in the Indian Reservation. Training. The IHS, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I went to IHS, so I, I pulled a lot of teeth there. Well, they were severely rotten. So I went to pull this molar out, and I pull it out, and it breaks. The tooth just breaks off, so he's got a tooth in there, yeah. and he's got the broken tooth. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, I'm like, this is not good. I don't know what to do now. I don't have to do surgery on your jaw. So then we called the medevac, because at that point, it was like beyond what I could do. Yeah. And so they pick him up, they get him back to Bagram or Kandahar. I think Bagram has had the dentist at the time. There was like one dentist at country. Got him to Bagram, and the dentist, he pulled it out in like 10 seconds because he had the right tool yeah. to pull it out. So when Sean came back out and he landed, he came out with a kit and he said, hey, he said, good job. You did everything right to get this out, but you had the wrong tool. So the dentist sent you this tool, here you go. Nice. So I'm just trying to see, that's the demonstration of how as a medic you're out there on the soft or an SF is you're just out there on your own yeah. trying to figure out stuff. Yeah, everyone always uses the term austere medicine. Yeah. What does that mean to you? So austere medicine to me is when you're out past medevac, probably within an hour, almost. Yeah. For our purposes, I would think that's austere. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Because I know if I get a serious casualty, 
uh, in an hour, if he's not in surgery or seeing some type of uh, forward surgical team at that point, that means I have to manage him if they're that bad. Yeah. Just because of the distance the, the, from where you are to a top tier facility. Or, or when you're the only option. You're the only option. There's no doctor to go to other than you. And there's no surgical team to get this person to within an hour or two. Okay. So how did you see the, I guess from being there in February of 02 and then leaving in 15, how did you see the wars progress through your own eyes? Well, one, it became, I would say, more fatal. Like when you first got there, there weren't as many targets. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. there were just so many SF, there was, you know, 15 SF teams. But then soon as conventional forces started coming in, I think, okay, there's more targets now. So, uh, More of our people being targeted? Right, right. Okay. Because when you're a small SF team, you're a small footprint. You can move around. You can do stuff. Yeah. It's harder to pin an SF team down. Yeah. But now when they started bringing in more and more forces, I think at that time it became easier to target. Okay. And then the best way to target them is with IEDs, explosives, yeah. right? So I think that's yeah. when the explosives, uh, like we didn't hit any mines my first rotation or the second rotation, other than uh, villagers stepping on mines that have been there placed by other tribes, not by Taliban or whatever. There's two tribes trying to kill each other yeah. with landmines. But we weren't hitting landmines. We were getting ambushed, but not landmines or IEDs or driving over IEDs. That yeah. came later, like three or four years later okay. when that started. So I think it became more dangerous or more violent. Yeah. As we built up forces, it started becoming more violent, like more targets. Yeah. More, they started figuring out ways how to get to us. So I think that changed. Then as you added these conventional forces and more command structure, then it started becoming less of running your own space and now command influencing what you're doing because the technology got better at talking to each other. Yeah. Now you can get on SATCOM and talk to your commander at any point, whereas the beginning of the war, you were totally on your own. You, you know, with the FM radio or whatever, the AM radio, right? We were communicating that way. Yeah. We had SAT. But our sat radio stayed at the fire base or the safe house. So we just kept getting more and more commanders right. involved in the decision process of what yeah. you were doing. But if we're talking about medicine, I guess what evolved there was better was a lot more medical evacuation. Like we got way more helicopters. Now we were getting people injury to forge surgical within, you know, could be 15, 20 minutes. Yeah could be 30 minutes that 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 was an evolution i have to say that was that was probably good saving lives that way yeah we had the first forward surgical team on our fire base and the reason we had that was because when i was in the 82nd i worked as a medic on a forward surgical team and i knew about it so when we first went the first rotation you know we had the one casualty he got shot through up here in the upper shoulder and got an artery hit and he bled out because they couldn't bring a medevac in for him because they only flew at night and he got shot early in the morning. Okay. So he needed a surgeon, he needed whole blood, all those yeah. things. That's something you just can't reach. You can't reach it, right. Yeah. It's just not, you're just not gonna reach it. So he died, after he died, I told the commander, Hunter, I was like, you know, they have, the army has forward surgical teams that 
they move around. Like they go with 82nd on these drops and stuff. Yeah. They've never been used wartime ever. And he's like, what are you talking about? I, I explained the whole thing and he started pushing up higher. He's like, hey, we need a force surgical team. Higher like, well, what are you talking about? There's no force surgical team within third group. Nobody knows what you're talking about. Because yeah. the 82nd were the first ones ever filled the force surgical team oh. to jump in on the drop zones when they when they jump when in. When they drop a thousand guys. When and they drop a thousand guys. 20 broken femurs. and Right. Yeah. So we were the first ones to get it in Orgoon. I was in Orgoon at the time. Then things started changing for us on saving lives because we were able to evac people to the fire base now. And then the surgeons would do surgery there. Yeah. And then wait for the medevac there. Yeah. So my old battalion PA, I think, was having a conversation with a few of us and said, you know, the greatest medical innovation in wartime has been the helicopter. Not anything that you use to treat a patient. It's the helicopter. Right. Getting them on to a surgeon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I guess we could talk about innovation in medicine through wartime. So World War II, we saw field ambulances, but also World War II, you began with the widespread use of antibiotics to, to treat injuries. You go to Korea, that's when the first helicopters were used, as we know from watching MASH probably. Mm -hmm. But Korea, we started using helicopters, so you're shortening your time from the injury to your advanced care, so getting them in front of a surgeon. And then go to Vietnam, we have blood products being used in yep. combat. We have burn care. We even have other non-trauma stuff like acclimatization protocols because you're showing up in a jungle and you have to fight right away. But then over the past 20 years, there's been so much. So actually, a friend was talking to me about this. He said, think about what your aid bag looked like when you first became a medic and when you finished. Yeah. So... What was your aid bag like when you were a line medic in the 82nd to when you left 20-something years later? Whew, wow. So I would say when I was a line medic, had a lot of medicine in it. Yeah. Because I was on the conventional side with the 82nd and uh, the 25th Infantry. But when you went out, nobody got trauma. Unless, you know, they had a vehicle accident, right. but we were just training, so nobody got like... You're just serious. doing like sick call? Yeah, like sick call medicine. So my aid bag had like sick call medicine, it had some bandages in it, yeah. and foot powder. Uh, <laughs> foot powder. Yeah, so you had foot powder in there, aspirin, Motrin, yeah. over-the-counter meds. That was before 2001. Yeah. But what about when you went to SF Medic course? Of course, the changes there. Cause then, then the changes happened. Then yeah. we started, then I started learning trauma medicine yeah so that changed so now my bag ditched all the medicine right there's no motrin or any yeah. of that over-the-counter stuff in my aid bag it's just specifically for trauma treating yeah. severe bleeding fractures you know chest injuries so, yeah so that changed and my bag actually got bigger because i i wasn't a confident medic at that time so really? This is where I think about it, is the more confident a medic is or more experienced, the smaller their aid bag gets. So when I first started, my aid bag had everything I, I needed for every possible injury yeah. you could think of, and it was heavy. But then as time went on and I started getting experience and training and treating people, then my bag started getting smaller because I figured out what I actually needed in my bag. I didn't need a bunch of extra stuff yeah. that I thought I needed before, like, you know, 
20 packages of rolled gauze, you know, or yeah. something like that, because, you, you know, you need that gauze to pack wounds. And so anyways, and the, and the tourniquet hadn't made to the prime time yet. Yeah. Yeah. So the tourniquet wasn't prime time when I first got to group. We were still, I was still teaching the improvised tourniquet when I yeah, first got to group. Yeah, it's a rolled up cravat and a wooden dowel. Yes. Yeah. Right. That was it. That was when I first started. And, you know, in 2001, when we went into Afghanistan, I had taught everybody how to do improvised tourniquets, yeah. how to use bandages, how to do everything. And everybody already carried it in their cargo pocket. Yeah. So everybody already carried their own medical kit to treat themselves or whoever. Yeah. That's know. new in, in terms of our history of going to war. That's new. Right. Yeah. Right. That's only 21st century. Right. Soldiers didn't carry their own medical equipment. And right. it's, it's primarily treat yourself or when someone finds you messed up that they can use your equipment to treat you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was uh private in the infantry going to get my expert infantry badge we had the medical station and it was treat a wound step one put a field dressing on it wait five minutes if it's still bleeding step two put a pressure dressing on it wait five minutes if it's still bleeding step three put a tourniquet on it yeah how wrong was that? Yeah, yeah, that's way late in the program. And I think that is influenced by the EMS. I think a lot of military medicine in the 90s and the 80s was very influenced by EMS, by paramedics yeah. and uh, EMTs. That was the influence because they were the ones that were seeing trauma, not military folk. And so that changed in 2001 when the military, well, actually changed in 93, Black Hawk Down. That's, yeah. when, that's when military soft or special forces medic changed was after night is Black Hawk Down. Yeah. That's when we started changing how we were doing things because EMS medicine did not work on the battlefield. So then yeah. we started making that change. Yeah. And, and so by 2001, I had already started using the tourniquets and treating trauma and bleeding and all that and you know, did cross training with all the guys and taught everybody how to use that stuff. Yeah. But I got another story for you. So now we're evolving, right? Then we get the tourniquet or we get the commercially made tourniquet. And there have been countless types of these yes. pushed out over the last 20 years. Yes. Yeah. 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 So you got the cat, you got the soft tee, CMS has one. There's like six approved on Kotzi right now. That being said, um, the first one used by me and the medics in third group was the soft tea, which was made by Ross Johnson, yeah, who was in my company on the first use in Afghanistan. Okay, that's the one with the progress capture and the metal handle. Right, right. Yeah. So he uh, single hand use. Yep. Yes. I mean, at that point in time, becoming a thing it has to be single hand use, right? Yeah. For you know, if you get injured on your arm, you got to yeah. be able to put it on your arm. Yeah. So Ross had designed this tourniquet in the schoolhouse designed in the schoolhouse to pass the course, right? To put a tourniquet on. Everybody's, well, oh, at really? the time, yeah, okay, see, so at the time when you went through the course, there was no commercial tourniquets. You improvised tourniquets on all your scenarios and so all your So he invented runs. it to pass the course? He, I think, well, I think, I don't know if he invented past the course. I think he invented because he's like, there's a better way to do a tourniquet than two cravats and a stick. Well, yeah, it's more important than the course, but that was his, that was his vehicle right to innovate yes he's like there's a better way to do this and so he started and this is the way i know it he started making these versions in the course 
And then he finally came up with one, and then he deployed, I think in 2004 or 2005 with our company. And he had a few and he handed them out uh, to different medics. And then the first use was on an 82nd soldier that was uh, part of, so we used to do joint patrols with the 82nd, used to be our first layer. Okay. So they were kind of our guaranteed, you know. Backup. Backup, right? Muscle. <laughs> For sure, yeah. yeah, they were our muscle. Right, because you know, you go out a team is like six guys go out. Yeah, uh, and then you take a platoon of the eighty second, and then you take your fifty indigenous forces with you. Okay. And so, anyways, eighty second, so we, they got ambushed. Eighty second soldier got the tourniquet on, saved his life, and then that's when the softy took off from there. Yeah. After that first use, and then now you have all these tourniquets that have come after. There have been other field and pressure dressings and single-handed application dressings that apply their own pressure once you wrap them there have been coagulation devices right hemostatic dressings yeah yeah airway interventions so if we evolve for trauma or combat medicine so we, we our airway has evolved to straight it's gone to crike yeah it's evolved over time yeah uh we used to when i went through the course we did intubations yeah, same. We still we'd have to know how to do, and uh, what is that? The laryngoscope. Yeah, laryngoscope. Uh, intubation, like you're you're working in anesthesia almost. Right. But now it's you just skip that and do the cricothyroidotomy. Right. Now they're just going straight with cutting the into the neck, like you know most people only see on TV. Right. Exactly. So they're yeah. going straight to that now. And um, it all comes down to logistics with that, right? Because you, you have to carry batteries, you got to carry a learning scope, you're adding yeah. space. You're, this is where your, your, your aid bag is getting smaller over yeah. time. Yeah. Because you're getting rid of the laryngoscope. Because I used to carry a crike in a fanny pack. It was this small. You right. Know, it was so, the yeah. So size you, of my iPhone now. Yep. So it's getting smaller. Uh, we're getting rid of the things that. I wouldn't say innovation works, except it doesn't work when you're laying on the ground with a helmet and um, yeah. body armor on yeah it's easier you almost have to get in the prone above their head right to get in the right position to get in the right position and that's not really going to happen yeah it's not it's not going to um, no matter how much you practice that it's a very difficult airway to manage yeah so that's one evolution right so we yeah. kind of got away from the in, innovation and we've gone straight to crike we've gone away from trying to address extremity injuries we're going straight to tourniquets, so that's changed. So, you know, that takes out a bunch of gauze out of your bag. Yeah. So that makes your bag a little bit smaller. Yeah. Occlusive dressings have come along. So with the advancements in gear, you also advance the training, right? Right. Because it used to just be, here's a field dressing, here's a cravat, good luck, to now, now we have this doctrine, tactical combat casualty care, or TCCC, which is taught in the military and then gets taught outside the military by yeah. military vets. And it's a different, I guess, it's like an algorithm. It's a different way to work through a casualty, really coming out of the special operations community, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Totally out of the special operations community. Yeah. Because we were 12 guys or whatever, right, out there in austere conditions. You can't call an ambulance. You got to start saving yourselves. And then it forced multiply because it put more medical equipment on the battlefield, right? Because if a whole platoon all has a tourniquet, instead of the medic having one, yeah. two, or three, if it's a platoon of 40 guys, you have 40 tourniquets out there. 
Yeah. So now they're they're all carrying their own tourniquet. If they get injured, they treat themselves. But now the medical equipment's getting spread, so your bag's getting right. smaller again, right? It's kind of like if you're on a machine gun team, you put a box of ammo on everyone in your squad. Right. When you need extra, you don't have to carry a thousand more rounds, but you have it there when you need it. Right. You so have you do the same thing out. with medical supplies. The same thing. So it's spread out. And then you're giving everybody skills to save themselves. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the ultimate in, we're gonna see how good of a trainer you are. Because if you're the lone medic on an SF team and you're the casualty, what happens? Right, the, your team's gotta treat you. Yeah, did you, how well did you prep the rest of your team? Right, to save yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's yeah. a- That's a great point. Hell of a feeling. And that was the main driving force, not to bring that up when, before we went to Afghanistan, that was my main driving force for getting everybody training. And I mean, I, we, I did some intense training with my, yeah. with my guys. I mean, yeah. they were good yeah. because I knew they needed to save me. And yeah. luckily my team sergeant at the time, Rusty, he was a medic. He was an 18 Delta. Yeah, before. my first team sergeant was a medic too. Right, and that was his thing when I was like, you're gonna train everybody how to do this. Cause he had been, I forget where, it, what, Desert Storm or where he was, but. Anyways, he'd been to war and he was like, this is important. Mm. If you get messed up, they gotta be able to save you. Yeah, and, and you're like, not- Oh, okay. You're not <laughs> bringing up the rear. You know, people who don't know much about the military, maybe yeah. think of a medic is kinda sitting in the truck in the back, you know, of the patrol wait, waiting for someone to, to need him or her. Right. No, you're out there you're doing the same job as everyone else. Right. No, you're still shoot. shooting and maneuvering, yeah, on, maneuvering on the enemy. Yeah. 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 That's first. And then the medicine yeah. came second. I guess that was, that's another thing that's changed over time. As a 91 Bravo, you were taught to do medicine first mm -hmm. as a medic. But then when I got to SAW, this is where I started learning, not in the course, but started learning this from my, my team sergeant was, we were out doing training and then doing a medical drill. The other team got injured and they were calling me to come over. And he's like, no, he started just, you know, tearing ass. Cause he's like, we can't bring a medic all the way across to treat you guys. Yeah. He's going to get shot on the way. He can't just run out and yeah. do this. Who are the you <laughs> have to save yourselves yeah. and then we'll bring the medic in. Because you know, the medic might be in his own gunfight over here yeah. with with that team. So that's yeah. when I started learning that medicine's important, but the fight is first. You got to finish the fight before you can start trying to yeah. save people's lives. Eliminate the threat. Yeah. Yeah. You got to finish that or at least get it secure enough to do something. Hey everyone, here's the point where I take a break to tell you about the Coast to Coast Foundation. I spoke a bit more at length in our 4th of July bonus episode if you haven't listened to that yet. The Coast to Coast Foundation is founded and operated by members of the U.S. military special operations community. Its goal is to bridge the financial gap between veterans' medical needs and what's traditionally covered. The Foundation's annual cross-country motorcycle ride, the Ride for the Fallen, stops in more than a dozen cities across the country to strengthen communities and raise funds. We'll be posting this year's Ride for the Fallen route on our Instagram, so check that out and see how close it comes to you. 
All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in their recovery from combat and service-related issues like traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, substance abuse, and other physical injuries. The Coast to Coast is by veterans for veterans. Visit coastxcoast.org to find out more and to donate. They're also on Instagram and Twitter at CXC Foundation. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the show. So you have how you manage your your skills on your team and interact with your your team and do your job when it's time to mentor other younger guys or, or yeah. girls coming through. How do you switch mindset there? So that's I I do a lot of that right now, and I think I bring up stories like, like things that happened to me or happened to yeah. someone that I knew because a lot of medics now have not deployed. Yeah, they have not the, seen combat a yeah. lot. I don't want to call it the luck of the draw because it's probably the unluck of the draw. Right. But as a trainer, you're fortunate to have seen a lot of this stuff for real. And you have to convey that reality to the person you're training, right? Right. Yeah. And so I I guess I bring them through scenarios and then I bring them through learning lessons because I'll see the same mistakes from the same medics trained from the same schoolhouse. So the schoolhouse standardizes training. And I'll explain to them, I came from the same training. And here, those mistakes you made, there's the same mistakes I made. Yeah. I made because I didn't have anybody experience training me when I first got to group. Yeah. Uh, Very few guys had been to combat or seen combat injuries. But I just bring up a lot of the mistakes I've made. And it's like, okay, this is what I did this. And this is what really happened. I've made a, you know, a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot of mistakes, but I've made mistakes because of the training that I received prior to going. And then I had to learn it the hard way, like, okay. What's one of the examples that you tell people that you train now that, that may, might be hard lessons that you've learned that was just way different from what you thought it would be before you got hands-on? As I got better and better, um, I could, what I learned is I could skip steps. So you got the ABC algorithm or the March algorithm. Um, and so new medics will go right down and massive hemorrhage, put my tourniquet on. Oh, no, I don't, have, I don't have a massive hemorrhage. Now I'm at my airway. Okay. Is he breathing out? Is he airway problem? There is not. Okay. Let me go to the chest and let me do this and let me do this. Right. I'm at the point now is I see my casualty and I'm just skipping the whole thing and going to where I see the, the major problems happening yeah. and fix that really quick and then go through my assessment and, and break that down. So what I find with medics do is they want to follow those steps, which is it keeps them in sync, but it slows them down. To get fast, you got to figure out how to navigate that march is important. Now, once you do that and you get to a, a secure area, then yes, go through all every step. Make sure you hit everything. Yeah. But don't waste time. <laughs> if you see bleeding, treat it, go. And then go through your algorithm. Don't try to do it out in the open. So I think that's one thing on the treatment protocol I see is it's important because it keeps them in a sequence, but then when there's chaos, it's like <laughs> you don't have time for that algorithm. So a few of the casualties I had, I missed wounds on them. And I rarely, depending on the, treated everything. Yeah. I tried to, but it was more important to get these this casualty moving back than wasting time trying to figure out all the little injuries, you know, treat right. all the important ones yeah. and then try to get them back as fast as possible. Kind of like if someone's got, you know, one leg is amputated, the other leg has a fractured tibia, 
probably need to spend more time getting that person to a hospital than making a splint for the tibia. Right, right. Yeah. And, and you probably have multiple fly. patients too. Right, yeah. And you're I, triaging. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Here's another thing I try to impart on these young medics is once you do the cross training, use your guys to do a lot of your treatments in those situations, in those mass casual situations. Yeah. Don't try to do it all yourself. Delegate. Totally delegate it all. Yeah. Uh, and that's a hard thing for a new medic to do, to delegate other people to do treatments. Yeah. So that's another story. So we land on this highway in the middle of two villages. And this vehicle had four casualties in there. And not bad guys, civilian casualties. So they're calling for a medic. And then I got up there and I was like, I looked in the vehicle. I was like, oh, this is pretty bad. There was a team there to help me out. I was like, hey, just grab them all out. Just lay them all out on the, the road. And then I was like, just quarterback. I was just like, tourniquet, do this, do that, do this. And then guys were just working. Yeah. I didn't have to touch one patient, Yeah. except for the crike. One guy needed a crike, I got the crike in him, and then we sent him on our way. But just delegating as the medic, if you're the only one there, you got to take a step back because you got to look at the big picture. Because everybody was cross-trained on how to do all the skills, I just had to say, tourniquet, bandage, occlusive, Boom, 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 and just guys are just doing their, doing what they were taught. Mm-hmm. Throw them on the litters, took off. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's not what people think of, but once you get on the job, that's what you got to do. Yeah, right? yeah. So you, you've been, you said even before you came in the army, you wanted to be a medic. You want to be a special forces medic. Yeah, and not so, the assault medic. The the special forces medic you saw on the Green Berets with John Wayne. Yeah. That medic. Okay. <laughs> you know, the medic that's out there, you know, you're doing some patrols, but you're, you know, you're doing medicine, you're seeing the indigenous people. Yeah. You're doing good medicine, you know, you're winning hearts people. and minds. Winning hearts and minds. That that was the 18 Delta I I wanted to be. Yeah. And then do some of the cool army stuff. Yeah. So you probably had a really good idea of what you wanted to continue doing once you left. Yes, so yeah. I came in the Army to be a 18 Delta Special Forces medic, stay yeah. involved in medicine. When I decided to retire, I looked at going to maybe to PA school, but then my wife worked at a clinic. She told me what the PAs do, and I said, nope, I don't wanna be a PA. Yeah. And then started looking into med school, and I'm like, that's gonna take forever, going to med school. Then I retired and started working for for the air force as a contractor doing their medical training in here in tucson and that fit in i was like okay i have a lot of stuff to share this works for me yeah and so i do a lot of the the medical training only because it kind of fits into uh, what i'm doing yeah do you think that there's a gap in accreditation for someone with a background like yours coming out and doing i think there is for any enlisted guy coming out with our background, yeah, they really need accreditations. They need degrees. Right. Because you can do your EMTP, but it's not required of you in the military. Right. You can do it if you want, but even then you come out and you have EMTP, and that's really the only thing that is going to carry over and you may not want to be a paramedic. Right. You may want to do other stuff. Exactly. You may want to do clinical stuff. Right. But you just don't have any of the certifications that they're looking for, I guess. You, no, you don't. You don't have, uh, and, and 
they can't relate what you know medicine-wise to yeah. what they do civilian side. Yeah. So you can tell them I was pulling teeth in Afghanistan. Yeah. In I'm an amateur dentist. Yeah, I'm an amateur. I, Where I do I teeth. put that? Yeah, I know how to numb. I'm a uh, I'm a barbershop surgeon. Right. You know, and I had done surgery too in Afghanistan uh, yeah. with the the FST. I got in there and scrubbed in, did surgeries. Yeah. Um, I remember when I worked at IHS. Yeah. I I assisted a C-section on my 22nd birthday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have some skills. Yeah. For sure. But it does not translate onto the civilian side. Not not at all. Yeah. Uh, and I, I tell guys now when they're getting ready, I'm like, you got to go get your certs. You, you got to get certifications. Yeah. Even before they get out, I'm like, go to school. Cause get that degree. Also in special operations and in military medicine, there's so much non-degree training you know people can come out of the military and and have spent four out of their 10 years in the military doing some pretty hardcore training when they get out they don't have a college credit to their name yeah that's and they've been spending their time learning critical skills and and all this and now they now they still have to make that up yeah that's where i am right now that's why i'm in college right now so you actually though you did something I've seen a lot of people do is you took your last tour as an ROTC cadre. Yeah, I did do that. What was that like? That was awesome. Yeah? Yeah, that was great. Giving back to the Army after 20 years of, you know, going at it hard, going there to the ROTC, giving back to those students. It was awesome. And well, we had Micah on our second episode, and he said when he is in ROTC, he hated the, the idea of calling another kid a year older than him, sir. We didn't do that. And he, but he, he remembered, he remembered one of his cadre who was Green Bray. He said, yeah. I, want, I want to be like that guy. Yeah. 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 I was real with the students. I didn't bull crap them. I, I made them work hard. Yeah. But I had a lot of experience that I could share with them. Yeah. So that was a great experience. Also got me ready to transition to civilian life because I had to work with university administrators. Okay. So that was a new experience for me working with civilians, but you know, civilians don't understand why we call them civilians. Oh yeah. You know, you know, in well, the yeah, military, we share, understand, share more of your thoughts, right? You know, in the military, we understand when we say civilians, we mean anybody not in the military to us is the civilian. Yeah. Um, civilians don't call themselves civilians. So I've tried to change yeah. my language talking with people I work with. When I talk about people, I don't yeah. call them civilians. Yeah. If you watch The Wire, Omar says, you know, I'd never put my hand on a civilian. <laughs> they, have, they have a little different meaning for it. Right. Yeah. yeah but did. I, no, I, yeah, I get it. The bureaucracy of working in the public sector was challenging. So one of my first challenges was we had some issues with logistics or something at the university. I don't remember what it was, but I went into the dean at that time and I said, I can solve your problem tomorrow. And she said, Monty, sit down. Okay, I know you're coming from the military, and I know you guys like to get stuff done. She's like, but we're a university, and we have rules. We have ways of doing things. So although all those ideas are great, and they actually would work, that will take time to implement all those changes. So I'm not saying we're not going to make those changes. It's just not going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. I was like, I can fix this now. She's like, that's not how we do it here. Yeah. You know, there's a process. Yeah. So what I did was I learned the process and then what I could have changed in a day, it got changed over six months. Yeah. <laughs> so it took time. So you have a lot of stakeholders, 
same as the military, but like you said during the beginning of the war, you had delegated execution authority. Right. And a lot of times, if you're able to ask for permission, it's expected that you ask for permission from everybody, and no one wants to feel left out yeah. instead of just getting it done. Right. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I think that that's how she had put me in my place. And then, I, then that's when I learned, I was like, okay, you can't be forceful with people. And I'm learning that too in the businesses I'm doing now. I'm actually taking an organizational leadership bachelor's. Yeah. And it's going into a lot of HR, business management, and a lot of things I'm learning some of it's the same except for on the military side we romanticize leadership right we have a very well-defined hierarchy yes right although people can step up at any time yes right depending on who the, the the leader is well but in the military you <laughs> you always have to know your boss's job yes right for a very obvious reason right to step up when the time comes yeah yes on the private sector side, leadership is different in that you need more buy-in. Like you need more buy-in with the people that if you're leading them or you're working with them and you got to explain more yeah. and it's got to benefit them in some way, whether it's just a little bit, but yeah. in some way- You they, can't they, just they, use patriotism and life and death as a motivator? Right, yeah, you just can't, <laughs> you just can't say charge. Yeah. You, you got to get buy-in and you got to tell them, why, like in the military, we make decisions. You know, some things we do, we give the why. And then sometimes you just have to make a decision yeah. and you don't give guys why and they're going to follow it. Mm-hmm. On, this, on the private sector, they got to know why they're doing something. Mm-hmm. If you want them to buy in. Yeah, I mean, you can tell them to do it and they'll do it, but it doesn't mean they're going to do a good job. Yeah, They don't have to do a good job. Yeah. And the other part of it is on the military side, people can't quit. <laughs> right? On the private side is they can walk out at any time. They don't have to take your crap. They don't have to. They can just go, I don't need this, and walk out. And now you've been working on this project or whatever you're doing for six months, and and they walk out. That hurts. That hurts business. Do you think it's generational or just that it's a stark difference between military and civilian? And would you learn from the kids you were mentoring while you were in ROTC cadre about, about appealing to, you know, younger generation motivation, how to lead? Okay, so they're young and they're uh, naive on real world stuff. Like, yeah. They don't know what they don't know, of course. Right, but, but they're still there for the right reasons, right? Well, some, some don't know. Like that first year, they're just, they're kind of like, well, that's kind of cool, let's check this out. Putting their toe in? Yeah, they just, do I want to do this or not? So, you know, you got to make it exciting, fun, give them challenges, responsibilities, let them lead. But when I think about the generation difference, I would think, so our generation, I think, was just as stupid. Like my generation uh, was just as did dumb things too as yeah. this generation. Yeah. The thing well, we that, all say that about the ones that come after our own. Uh, yeah, it's but, been going on for till you know since the beginning of time. Right. You at this that age group has always been issues. But the one thing that is different from this generation from my generation is the physical part. They don't work physically hard 
Really? Yeah. So they're, they're not out there working in their backyards. You know, they're not out. Like, oh, not, you mean that before they get to you? Yeah, before they've never. Some, well, I had a kid that never ran before. <laughs> never he's ran. He's in ROTC? And he was in ROTC his first year, right? He's just trying it out. And he goes and does this PT he test. He just never went for a run. Ever. Never went for a run ever. So he ran and I thought, I said, have you ever run before in your life? Because he did not. What did it look like? It was just like pop, pop, pop. I mean, there was no roll in his foot. <laughs> it was just a straight slam, 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 <laughs> slam. For two miles, he's doing this. His arms aren't moving. And I was like, this can't be right. So I, I walked, right when it ended, I walked up to him, you know, and I was, I just said, have you, have you ever run before? Because I thought it was kind of... Right, that's kinda, a hell of a thing to say to someone. Right. And I'm thinking, I'm just kind of joking. You know, I'm just going to yeah. razz him because he did not know how to run. And I was like, have you ever run before? And he's like, no. I was like, I said, are you serious? He's like, yeah, I've never had a reason to. Yeah. I, well, I would, I would take that as like, have you ever been coached? Have you ever been on a, on a team that <laughs> right. runs? Not have you... Have you performed the physical act of running? Right. And, and I, he said, no. He's like, I've never had a reason to just go run. He's like, I've, I was like, Jeez, wow. You ever have a reason to fly a kite? I was thinking maybe he's a you know, Nintendo, Xbox, maybe, yeah. playing video games. Yeah. He wasn't an athlete, obviously. He was not doing athletic. So what did he want to get out of the program? He wanted to be in the Army. He didn't know what the Army was, but <laughs> he wanted to be in the Army. Yeah, he didn't know what it was all about. Uh, but I, what I did was I, I took another cadet. I actually asked all my senior cadets, I said, hey, could someone take this guy out and, and teach him how to run? And I had one cadet step up, and by the end of the year, he was not fast, yeah. but he was passing the PT test. Yeah. Now he's an infantry officer. Really? He made, <laughs> yeah. All right, so he got there. Yeah, he got there. But he needed some, uh, so there's a difference, right? So there's a difference in the kids now is their parents and their teachers aren't ever blatantly honest with them. Yeah. They're never tell them like, you suck. Tough love. This is why you suck. You, they, they don't do that. So when they came to me, I would have kids crying because I just told them they sucked. Like, that's what he said to me. He's like, nobody's ever been as honest with me as you have been. And I was like, wow. So that's why I brought that because he told me that. He's like, nobody's ever been that honest with me and told me that I couldn't do something. And then that was his driver. Do you still stay in touch with some of these uh, kids? I do. I do actually have one uh, I stay in touch with. He is now in the Q course. Oh, yeah. He's going to be a Green Beret, too. Yep, yep. Nice. He was in Range Battalion. He, he did there. Another one I keep up with, he was National Guard. He wanted to be active duty, so he got infantry. He's on active duty now. Keep up a couple of the pilots. I got a couple aviators that are out there flying around. One guy just got picked up for the 160th. Yeah. So he's going to be a pilot in the 160th. Because I told him the truth. I was like, look, you don't want to be in the conventional side. Well, there are some people who love it. Yes. Right? They are some people that love it. You just got to love having routine, having, I guess, clear guidance, uh, you know, structured hierarchy and reporting. And there's some people who really get used to it and just appreciate life in the military. It's stable. Yeah. Like Very re stable. Really stable, yeah. right? Yeah. But see, I think a lot of it was, it's the personalities of the individuals. Together. The people who were, who were drawn to you, you share personality traits with them. Right. Yeah. And so, and then yeah. I kind of mentored them how to navigate 
get on that side. Yeah. I had an intern who was still finishing college, and I talked to him all about being a Green Beret, and he went and became a Navy SEAL. Or he's he's went, and now he's training to be a Navy SEAL. Like, <laughs> do you not listen to anything? <laughs> Hey everyone, this is the point where we take a break to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you're new, please take the opportunity to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes every two weeks. If you happen to be on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and you have the time, we appreciate all the ratings and reviews. A rating is quick and easy, it's just the number of stars you give us, and a review is where you write a little bit more about what you think about the show. More importantly, we know that the most effective advertising is by word of mouth, so please share us with anyone you think will enjoy the podcast. If you want to engage with us, you can find everything about us on thankyounowwhat.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, at thankyounowwhat. And you can always get in touch directly by emailing thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. If you haven't caught our 4th of July bonus episode, we talk a little more behind the scenes if you're into that. Lastly, producing a podcast isn't free. If you really like what we're doing here and you want to contribute, there are a couple options. You can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website. We also have a link on our website to our Patreon site, patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. There you can subscribe to give a fixed amount per episode, even if it's just a dollar. We've had several people very generously donate to the podcast so far, and we are incredibly thankful for your belief in what we're doing. Please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort and that all net proceeds from this podcast will be redirected to nonprofits that support veterans as soon as we pay for things like hosting, software, and equipment. You can also give directly to the nonprofits we feature on the podcast. Thanks for joining and let's get back to the episode. So is military retirement a misnomer? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Could you ex- could you explain? I didn't retire. I separated, but you retired, yeah. and it's and I'm ball. I'm 100 going, yeah, 100 miles an hour. Yeah, I think maybe it's not a misnomer in the sense of not everybody like people can retire and not do other stuff. Maybe it's just my personality. I think no. I think most everybody still keeps doing other get, stuff, getting after it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, people we know. Yeah, but even still, what are you gonna do? You're, you know. Yeah. You're, who? I was 45. Yeah. You know, I retired yeah. at 45, so now yeah. what, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's half of our show title, now what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it is, you're right, it's a misnomer. I mean, guys retire and they just keep going, doing whatever they were doing, they find something to do. Yeah. But I think what is different, if they do it right, when they retire, they should go do something they want to do, or when they when they get out, right? When you get out, yeah. go, go find out what, what you want to do. Just don't take a job just to do a job. Yeah. That's what I think you should do. Anyway. Especially if you got to spend most of your life already doing something you enjoy. Right. Keep it up. Yeah, keep it up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So were you more focused on the job market or entrepreneurship and doing your own thing? So I think doing my own thing has always been part of my whole being. Yeah. Because thinking about, before I came in here, I was thinking about things, about how I navigated the military. And some people navigated the military they knew what they wanted to do and they went and did it. I navigated the military knowing what I didn't want to do. Although I was reaching for, once I made 18 Delta, that was it. That was, at, that was where I wanted to be. Yeah. I was happy. But then, you know, people wanted me to do other stuff. And I was like, I don't want to do that. You don't want to go be an instructor at the schoolhouse. Yeah. You want to still, 
I think everyone's trying to stay operational as long as they can. Right. So yeah. I was like, okay, how do I how do I not do that? Yeah. So I, I kind of felt like that. That's what happened to me when I retired. Was I was looking at what people were doing in jobs, and I was like, I don't want to be a PA. I don't want to be a doctor. Do you do that just having this thought? I guess faith that something is out there for you and just not take option one because you're going to find the thing you want? My wife believes that in me. When I was sitting there not doing anything for the first four months on, on you know, being retired, she was concerned, but she was like, you know what? Like, I don't even worry about you because you, you, just, you just go this way and things just work out for you. Yeah. I mean, you followed what you're good at. So you're, I stayed in with what I'm good at, yes. Yeah. Your LinkedIn page simply says, in the business of saving lives. So you got a bunch of stuff going on. Yeah. You are paramedic instructor at the community college. Yeah. You're a consultant subject matter expert for government agencies, you know, like a bunch of different things, combat casualty care, chemical bio care, yep. extrication, tactical medicine. You do combat medical training still for the services. Yep. And then you started a medical innovation firm too. Yes. So you got your hands in a lot of things. Uh, and I'm going to school too. Yeah. Not and to, I'm going to school. Not to mention. Yeah. So it, it stretched me thin for sure. Um, trying to go to school, starting this company with partners. So, I, you know, I'm partners with these guys and then sole owner of the training. So yeah. I would say like I'm 50% for the company here, Delta Development Team, and then I'm 40% college and then 10% on the training side. So yeah. my training is really dropped because I'm just trying to keep everything. Yeah. And then I got way. my family in there too, which is good because yeah. the more I spend home in Tucson, the more I spend with, with my yeah. family. So what's changed about family life, personal life after retiring? Oh, it's gotten so much better for me. Yeah. Um, I think you know the you know the tempo that we had you know before I got out. I think we were gone at least no. nine months of the year. Even though you're only deployed for you know three or four, yeah. Then you got all the other training that happens. So yeah. you're, so you're not home. So I really didn't know my kids. My kids really didn't know me. So when I hit 19, my wife and my daughter both said, "Hey, you're done. 20 years. You're done deploying, going overseas. Just with all the stress of not knowing if you're coming home." And every year going over there, I went over every year, every year I was over either Afghanistan and Iraq for 12 years straight. Yeah. They said, you got to make a decision. You're either retiring, you're leaving, or, you know, we're going separate ways. The whole family. We're, we did the commitment for 20 years for you. Yeah. It, you know, it's time to, to make a change yeah. uh, type deal. How old were your kids at that point when you hit See, 20? My, well, my daughter was in high school, so she was very aware of yeah. what I was doing. Okay. And then my son just started high school. He was aware of what was going on too. Yeah. So, I mean, they knew what my job was. Yeah. And then, of course, my wife did. So that's why we took the ROTC job. So that was like a compromise. That was the compromise. Get back to Arizona. So anyways, so the family mending started when I came back here to ROTC because mm. I was home for a straight six months. And my son had asked my wife, is he ever going to leave again? Because, you know, my son has never seen me for six months. Yeah. And then I'm putting, you know, the thumb on him because when I'm not there, he got used to run the roost. Yeah. And now for six months straight, he hasn't <laughs> run any roost. You know, he's just like, oh, this guy is not leaving. So that first year of uh, us being together was the transition point to where I actually started learning about how to be a normal person. 
how to not be so agitated up all night, you know, I could start relaxing a little bit. So it took me about a year. And then my wife, I think, told me at some point after that year, she started liking me again. So, <laughs> I'm not kidding. She's like, I actually like you again. She's going to listen to this, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, oh, I like you again. You're, you're actually, you're a way better person than you were. So now my relationship with my wife and kids are, are, are pretty good. I travel a lot yeah. um, still, but my, my son, he lives in town uh, and he's doing really well. He comes and visits every couple of weeks. He's at the house on Sundays. That's awesome. My daughter's still there. She works as a researcher at the University of Arizona. Yeah. So I see her quite a bit and I, you know, I see my wife nice. every night. It's a lot more peaceful. Nice. I think I've also mellowed out a lot. What positive things have you passed on to your kids from being in the military? They're very punctual. <laughs> they're very punctual. They're reliable. Their bosses yeah. like them because they're punctual. Because you hold them accountable. Yeah, they work hard Yeah, at their jobs. They like give extra effort, you know. Are they, they doing what they want to do because they saw you do it? They are doing what they want to do. She wanted to be a researcher. She's doing what she intended to do. Yeah. My son, he bounced around a little bit trying to figure out what he wanted to do. He um, sells cars over here at Desert Toyota, and he's killing it. His personality, it all fits. He yeah. likes what he's doing. I guess that's one thing I drove him to always do was find out what you want to do and just do it. Don't waste your time on other stuff. Go for what you want. If that's what you want to do, you know, I think that's important to tell him you're not perfect. You know, it's yeah. important to tell him all these things you failed at. You know, my son, he was yeah. doing his thing, and I was like, don't. <laughs> when yeah. I was 20, I'm lucky I didn't go to jail. Like, all that stuff you're doing, yeah. it's stupid, but I did that too. And so when we had that discussion is when he turned things around. So I guess that's kind of what I instilled in him. Yeah. Seems like you got knocked off course, but not off heading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. So can we talk about your innovation firm? Yeah. You're, so you, okay, so... We talked about innovation through battlefield medicine. So there's there was this thing I remember called the Golden Hour Container, which had blood available on the battlefield. Right. Your firm works in refrigeration technology for austere environments. Right. So they are experts. I know I mean us, but I'm not the expert in thermal regulation. Yeah. They're the expert. And so uh, the CEO, Chris, he approached me and said, hey, I have this idea. I want you to come check it out. Yeah. And so they showed me this box that they're trying to build to store whole blood, right? And I saw that and I thought, man, that's an awesome idea. My whole purpose and intent was not to start this business, was to get this device to medics now. Yeah. They need a better way to carry whole blood. We know whole blood is what we need on these austere conditions when they told me that, I was like, we got to do it now. And they said, okay, it doesn't work like that. I was <laughs> like, what? Let's just package it up and let's go take it to them. And they're like, no, it's just, this is just a prototype. And then yeah. I saw how big it was. And I said, they don't need that. I said, they need it as small as you can possibly get it. Can you yeah. guys do that? Because you can't just throw blood in an igloo cooler, like a lunch pail with some ice packs. I'm sure it's such a narrow range where yes. you're not killing off the RBCs, right? It, yep, it's four to six C transport, uh, four to ten C. Yeah. So that's the range it has to be maintained in. 
So the golden hour does that over so many hours, but it degrades over time, the mm. temperature, right? So this device keeps temperature constant through the whole period. Okay. So when they brought me in and I saw it, I was like, man, this is such a great idea. Um, can you make it smaller? And they just looked at me like, why? Why would we want to make it smaller? Yeah. Like, I don't, so you got to pack it in. Yeah, exactly. So I left. I said, hey, it's a great idea. I started making calls. And I started calling around to medics. And I was like, hey, how are you guys carrying whole blood? What if you could carry it in a device that does this? And they were like, where do we buy it? I was like, well, it's not made yet. Yeah. So I called them back and I said, okay, here, here are these people that say they, they need and want this device. And then the engineers and Chris, they went back to the drawing board and they came up with this idea of like, yeah, we can shrink this down potentially. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, I want to be in on this. I want to be part of this yeah. project, you know? And so we all formed together. So we have two engineers. One is electrical, one's a mechanical engineer. They're the experts. Chris is the CEO. He's kind of the business savvy guy yeah. in finance. And I'm the expert in the use of that device, understanding how this will actually work on the battlefield. You're doing the testing on it, field testing? We're going to. We yeah. haven't got the field testing yet, but we've done all the initial testing on our version one and it's all very good. But now we need to take it out and let the guys jump it out of the planes. <laughs> yeah. So Give me one. Yeah, yeah, we got to get it to jump out of a plane. So, you know, that's the part I bring in there. And then I've been starting to pick up some other roles in the company, HR stuff, some yeah. of the sales stuff. So now I'm just trying to fill some of the gaps. Yeah, what's it like team building in entrepreneurship? How different is it from the army or what are you doing differently? And I mean like baseline, you're not just giving people. Right, you gotta go find them. Yeah. You gotta find all the right people. I guess the big difference is in the military, whoever you get, they come from basic training, so they already know teamwork. Yeah. You have to communicate a lot more than I ever did before with the troops. Yeah. Like there's a lot of things with the troops that they already know or is one of those unwritten rules, as they say, you kind of have that culture. Yeah. But when you start a business, you don't have a culture yet. So we're building a culture right now. I mean, first, you company. have to have the wherewithal to realize what you just said. Yeah. That comes from where we were before, right? Soft has a culture. Yeah. And you learn that. And then when I got to ROTC, I definitely did some transformation of that program. For example, when I first got there, they had this Ranger competition team. I think that's what it was called. Mm -hmm. And they had never won anything. <laughs> no one would even go, go to the tryouts because they lost so much. And I was like, this isn't right. So, you know, I made that team focus. You know, we're gonna win. Found the right people, the athletic guys, guys that are driven, yeah. females that are driven, females that are very athletic, those people that are go-getters and formed this team, started training them on the skills and teamwork, working together, leadership, putting different people yeah. in charge. And then the first year they took second place and it was like a celebration. Mm. Like they won the whole thing because <laughs> they're like, holy smokes, we yeah. took second. And then the next year they go win. What's the difference between just getting all the best athletes together and putting together a good team? The motivation, right? So you gotta give them the motivation of why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. So our culture there at, at Delta is our purpose and our motivation 
is to get that device, that refrigeration device, to medics to save lives. Mm -hmm. So all our employees understand that is the end goal. Yes, we want to build this product. We want to sell it. We want to do those, but our purpose and mission is to, to save a life. That's how you start, right? You yeah. give them a purpose, give them a motivation. Why are we doing this? And then now they're behind it. And then the culture is setting the example, communicating, talking to them, see where, where they need help, have them ask you questions. I hate the thing saying lead from the front because it's not lead from the front, but it's participating, right? You're actually there. Mm -hmm. when they're having problems or they're not, but you're guiding them or helping them out. And whatever you, you see an issue, you're like, okay, how can I help you with this? Do you think that in product development, there's often a disconnect between the engineers and the end user? Yes. Is that one of the most important parts of your job? That is the most important part of my job. And so what we did was I, we, we made connections with the PJs out here and then we took the engineers out to the helicopter and the PJ said, this is where it needs to fit. Yeah. Right here. And then the engineers, they took their rulers, they measured, they went back to the drawing board. Yeah. I mean, what mechanical and electrical engineers are getting to go meet a bunch of Air Force pararescue and climb in the helicopter their devices installed in. Yeah, that's cool. That was a cool day, but it helps them understand and so communicating with the stakeholders on that side, right? The customer saying, this is all they can get out of it. And then they go, okay. So I got to go in between both. I got to make the customer understand the, the limitations of the engineering. And then I got to, you know, make sure the, the, the engineers understand how this thing's going to be applied and why they need it certain ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. So okay. what's next for you or for the company? So we are doing pretty good. That's not the only thing we do. So we have this device, but we have other stuff going too with thermal regulation. So we have other refrigeration things that we do with the military as well. Okay. So we have a couple other projects with the military we're doing as well as the flagship. Yeah, you're sort of building on your expertise in this area of research. Oh yeah. What other things need refrigerating, if I'm thinking about it, to that specificity? Well, well, the thing is, they make these refrigerations so that they're efficient. Yeah. Right. So a refrigeration device. It's like a power consumption thing? Right. Okay. So you have this one device that they've refurbished or redone and say it runs off a 15K generator. Mm -hmm. Well, with the software and the programming, they get more efficient. So now it takes a 5K generator. Yeah. So now you save on fuel. So it's really a logistical thing that they're solving. So you, you would take this. ISU 90, we'll say, yeah. with the uh, refrigeration on there. And so the cooks would have their perishable foods in there, oh, okay. things like that. So the more okay. efficient it is, the less fuel required to keep the food cold. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of what everyone on the SF team carries. So your weapons sergeant wants to carry more bullets. Your medic wants to carry more Duff. supplies yeah. and, and bags of saline. Your engineer wants to carry more demolitions and your communicator wants to carry more batteries. Oh, no, he never wants so to carry you, more batteries. He wants well, he to carry wants you to battery. carry his batteries. <laughs> yeah, he wants you to carry well, he his batteries. Say, he, yeah, he says, that, he says that you need batteries. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess so you're solving for the blood refrigeration problem, and then you can take whatever you, you discover from that and just roll it out to other applications. Yes. Well, we're also making some other devices, too. 
but they all revolve around the medical part okay uh as well so we we have some more things cooking uh, okay so 30 years ago you were getting in trouble yeah you're <laughs> for sure you're you wanted to be you wanted to be a special forces medic you that did was it. that was for sure gonna happen you did it for 20 years you're continuing in the business of saving lives yeah if you kind of look on your career do you think that you're the person you are today because of the military or did the military just help you be a better version of the person that you were hmm made me more disciplined it made me more ethical i was getting in a lot of trouble yeah. but then when i got in the military i stopped right discipline following rules i'm not the best you with, worked in corrections yeah and i hated that i hated working <laughs> you in corrections. into the into the military to learn discipline huh? yeah so some things but i don't think my personality's changed much yeah in the military i always wanted to be a medic I think it's in my family. My grandmother was the first flight nurse in Arizona in the 1960s. She was flying medevacs. Really? Yeah, in the 1960s. She was on a helicopter flying little babies. Mm. And my sister's a nurse practitioner. So I think medicine's just always been in my family. So I think I always was going to be a medic or paramedic or something like that. Yeah. But I just used the military to get that certification, get that training, that medical training. So I never really intended to stay in. Yeah. I think had I not left when I did, maybe it would have changed me the wrong way. It made me an expert, though, because I've been doing special forces medicine for a long time, a lot of experience. I did gain a lot of skills in leadership. I don't think it changed my personality, but it did give me a lot of skills. That has set me up for success now. Still the same old guy, just now an expert in your field. Yeah, just an expert in my field, but I haven't changed that much. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I know we're just getting started, and so we got a lot of brave people ponying up to be in this first round of uh, interviews. Yeah, no, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> it's fun trying to remember stuff. I remember that the one girl you had on, she had said she'd wish she had a journal. Like yeah. she, she had. Yeah, Tara. She said she wished she, she would she have. She said she wished she kept a journal or I wish I would have had two. Yeah. When she said that, I had thought that before, but when she said that, I was like, she is so right. I wish when I was in the good times, someone would say, hey, you're in the good old times right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I would say, really? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I better write some of this down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't write, I didn't write anything down. Yeah. And now it's just coming from, from memory. Thanks for tuning in to Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Less than a week before we published this episode, I saw an announcement from Monty's company, Delta Development Team. It was a video posted to YouTube and LinkedIn featuring the latest model of their autonomous portable refrigeration unit, the APRU. It's going to change the way that the military transports whole blood for, to the point of injury on the battlefield. And I know many people are excited and we're re really proud of Monty and his team. The comment sections on the videos were already full of folks trying to get their hands on it. You can check them out at deltadevteam.com to see more. Thanks for tuning in and please subscribe, rate, review, and follow. Most importantly, join us next time on Thank You Now What.